Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. So um, on Twitter, I promised to uh, read one extract, but actually I've got permission to read three. And um, it was a debate over whether to do a chapter called Hitler's Gamble, one called Man of Honour, which is about Sicily and uh, mafiosa types, um, or one about air power called Crescendo in the Air. Um, And in the end, um, I'm doing all three, but I'm going to do what is going to be chapter three, Hitler's Gamble first. So here we go. Don't forget, this is unedited. Um, this is very much first draft, so it's going to be probably slightly different by the time the book comes out in September this year. Chapter 3, Hitler's Gamble. German commanders of the war were not widely known for their eccentricities, but the senior army officer on Sicily that May 1943 certainly stood apart from his peers. Partial to wearing both a tartan kilt and a claymore sword slung by his side, Oberst Ernst Gunther Bader had been something of a legendary figure in the Deutsche Afrika Corps under Rommel. Known for his fearlessness, immense charm, wonderful sense of humour and penchant for tapping into British telephone conversations and having a chat in his flawless English with whoever was on the other line. Another favourite trick was to call in to misdirect artillery fire. Born to wealth in Brandenburg in 1897, Bader had grown up an avid horseman, roaming wildly on his family estates. Clever and intellectually curious, he was immensely well-read and spoke not only English but fluent French as well. With a thirst for adventure, he enlisted in the cavalry the moment Germany went to war in 1914, even though he was still just 17. Somehow, he survived four years on the Western Front until being gassed very near the end in August 1918, albeit not too severely. He had been making a good recovery by the time the armistice was signed that November. It had been Bader's intention to remain in the army, but with its much-reduced size, there had been no place for him, and so instead, and still aged only 22, he had settled in another family estate in Holstein, in northern Germany, where he became a notable horse breeder. Bader's ambitions for an army life had not been blunted, however, and a few years later, in 1924, he was accepted back and joined the 14th Cavalry Regiment. Between army duties, he and his wife continued to breed horses and became quite celebrated as international show jumpers. Remaining in the cavalry, he served in Poland, then France, and when the Wehrmacht's last cavalry division was disbanded in 1941, he took over command of the 4th Motorcycle Battalion on the Eastern Front. In April 1942, he was sent to North Africa and soon after took command of the 115th Gewehr Regiment, just in time for Rommel's offensive against the British at Gazala at the end of May, and personally leading the assault that ended the Free French Resistance at Bir Hakim, and wielding his claymore as he led the way. On one occasion, Bader found himself caught in a British minefield, but with a captured English sapper persuaded the man to lead him through the gap. Once safe, Bader shook his hand, wished him luck and let him go. He won a knight's cross in the desert and a reputation as a superb commander who led from the front. To that latter extent, he was cut from the same cloth as Rommel. His men adored him, and although higher up the chain, his eccentricities, insistence on old-fashioned military chivalry and wackiness ruffled feathers, his performances and the value in which he was held by Rommel, Kessering and others ensured he was safe enough. Perhaps, needless to say, Bader was no great fan of Hitler and the Nazis. 
Severely wounded at the Battle of Alamein, he returned to duty in December 1942, but was not deemed fit for combat, and so was posted to a staff position at the Italian Commando Supremo, the Italian High Command, and then in April to Sicily to try and organise and salvage some German units from those returning from Tunisia, or who had been sent south as replacements, but had been held back because defeat there had loomed. Division Commando Bada was the starting point, although by the time of the Axis surrender in North Africa on 13th of May 1943, he had formed just one four-battalion-strong Panzergrenadier Regiment. Had the Allies been able to hustle their way across the Mediterranean and land right away, the door would have been wide open. Instead, Bada was able to continue building up German forces on the island, redesignated Division Commando Sicilian on the 14th of May, by which time he had some 30,000 German troops on the island, and with more heading its way. Among those moving south were a number of supply and support troops and also flak units, including several batteries drawn from Flak Regiment 7, with a mixture of 88mm anti-aircraft and four-barrelled quick-firing Flak Verling 38s, 20mm cannons. These flak units were veterans of the Eastern Front and had already seen considerable action during the war. This included 22-year-old Gefreiter Hans Chibulka from Jägendorf in Upper Silesia, then part of New Czechoslovakia, but now within the German Reich once more. Chibulka was something of an intellectual and poet, but for the German army he was a wireman, responsible within a small team of three for ensuring the batteries were all connected to battalion headquarters with field telephone wires. Although travelling with their wiring equipment in a truck, the column wound itself slowly down through Italy. On the 14th of May, they had been south of Rome, but it wasn't until two days later that they finally reached the Straits of Messina. It was 3am, still dark, and both sides and the water in between seemed to be still, quiet and devoid of life. A ferry was waiting ready, and, and first across were the headquarters company, including the wire team and their truck. An hour later, they pushed off. The sea was dead calm, but a cold breeze gently blew over them, dawn breaking in the east. As they pushed further out, the water began to swell, splashing onto the wooden deck. Then the sun rose, glistening, dispersing the fog, and suddenly there was Sicily. At first a narrow blue strip, and then, as they drew closer and the morning mist cleared further, so Messina seemed to rise up, and the, behind the city, the grey hills. In the coastal waters, colourful sails, wrote Chibulka in his diary. At the pier, a few men are sitting and fishing. On the beach promenade, trees stand in joyful green. The air that blows over from the land is warmed by the sun, but on the tongue, I don't know where from, a salty, bitter taste. An air raid siren now rang out, and moments later they saw them. Four engine bombers thundering over ponderously in close formation, their shapes clear against a steel-blue sky. Chibulka and his comrades stood on the pier watching, waiting apprehensively for the bombs to start falling. But the flying fortresses moved on in the direction of the mainland. The anti-aircraft gunners along the heavily defended straits opened fire, the sky suddenly full of clouds of bursting shells. The noise was immense, the guns, the explosions, the roar of engines. Suddenly there was a bright flash, an explosion. Chibulka and his friend Arno stood by the truck, their heads craned skywards, watching as a wing plunged down into the sea in a slow, sloping arc. So this is what death by air looks like, he thought to himself. What is left of the ten-man crew is a single parachute that descends slowly and pendulously over the waterway. And then, in what seemed like no time at all, the Straits of Messina were empty again. So, this was Sicily. Chibulka remembered a line from Goethe's Italian journey. Italy, without Sicily, makes no picture in the soul. Here is the key to everything. Chibulka and his comrades had no idea where they were headed, 
although news from North Africa had reached them by now. German plans at this moment were still very uncertain. The German high command discombobulated, to say the very least, by the disaster that had just occurred and which had followed hot on the back of the catastrophe at Stalingrad. Urgent plans needed to be made to try and repel the, the next enemy onslaught, wherever that might be, while also work out what to do about Italy, an ally that was clearly on the ropes. Historians have rather enjoyed accentuating the divisions between the Allies over strategy, the personality clashes, and the fact that it took some nine different plans before a compromise solution was agreed, and which have repeatedly been used to underline both divisions and the muddle-headed thinking that was cripping the Allied command. A different point of view is that Husky was always going to be mind-bogglingly difficult operation to plan, and that an evolving plan was entirely normal and understanding for such an enterprise in such challenging circumstances. Furthermore, what is remarkable about the Husky planning is not the levels of discord, but rather how well these new coalition partners were operating and rubbing along. It's all too easy to be seduced by a choice one-liner in a diary taken in isolation. The diaries and letters of these senior commanders need to be read and understood within the context in which they were written, by men with gargantuan amounts of responsibility, and as much as a means of letting off steam as a record for prosperity. Most people, at some point in their lives, have argued vociferously for something they care about, whether with colleagues, friends or family. So it was with the Allied commanders, but for them the consequences of making the wrong decision were potentially the lives of many young men, so of course at times matters grew heated. It was to be expected. But this really does not mean the coalition was crumbling at the seams. Far from it, that they could debate such matters was both healthy and showed how much the Allies cared about the mission they had been given. What is certainly true is that compared with the Axis partnership at any rate, the Allies were a marriage made in heaven. A striking feature of Nazi Germany was the truly appalling way in which it treated its Allies, with the possible exception of the Japanese, whom they largely ignored apart from a bit of intelligence sharing. All Germany's other Allies, whether it be Romania, Hungary, the Balkan states, Bulgaria or even Finland, were browbeaten and bullied and treated with little more than contempt. The Axis alliance with Italy signed first back in 1936 and then militarised with the Pact of Steel in May 1939, had begun on reasonable terms, not least because initially Hitler had been rather inspired by the Italian dictator, Benito Mussolini, and the two struck up something akin to a real friendship. That, however, soon turned sour when Germany began planning for the invasion of Poland without any prior consultation with Italy whatsoever. The cynical Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with the Soviet Union of August 1939, also done without Italy's knowledge, and which paved the way for the outbreak of war that September, further helped to sour matters. Indeed, although Germany was prepared to help Italy materially, it was on the understanding of a clear quid pro quo. Germany would fight to expand its borders and pursue its own aggressive foreign policy without the need for military assistance from Italy. Italy, on the other hand, would expand its own empire and sphere of influence in the Mediterranean without the involvement of German troops. This suited Hitler because he had always been paranoid about fighting on multiple fronts. That Germany had done so in the last war had been one of the major factors for defeat in 1918. The last thing Hitler wanted was to be worrying about his southern flank, the soft underbelly of Europe. Italy's role in Hitler's master plan was to ensure the South was safe and secure from enemy influence. How that simple plan had gone so terribly awry. After joining the war in June 1940, when Mussolini had thought both France and Britain were already beaten, the Italians first failed to secure the tiny and poorly defended but strategically vital Mediterranean island of Malta, but with a complete lack of any clear plan. 
Then they had disastrously invaded Greece without warning their German ally, and instead of the predicted easy victory, had quickly become bogged down and found themselves staring down the barrel of defeat instead. To compound matters, Mussolini had already ordered his reluctant generals to invade Egypt, which was a British protectorate. The tiny British Western Desert Force, just 36,000 men strong, promptly routed two entire Italian armies, driving them halfway across the vast expanse of Libya, an Italian colony, and capturing over 130,000 Italian troops in the process. As if that wasn't bad enough, the Italian Navy, which was its most modern component, was hammered in harbour by the British fleet air arm, and then twice given bloody noses in battles at sea by the palpably superior Royal Navy's Mediterranean fleet. The icing on the cake of catastrophe had been the loss of Abyssinia and Eritrea to the British, captured earlier in the 1930s by the Italians with such breast-beating fanfare. Humiliating as it was for Mussolini and Italy, it was disastrous for Nazi Germany. Suddenly, by early 1941, Hitler's strategic picture was looking rather grim, despite the raft of victories so far in the war. The Luftwaffe had been badly beaten in the Battle of Britain, her ill-equipped and understrength navy was fighting the Battle of the Atlantic and showing few signs of gaining the upper hand. And with a debilitating blockade imposed by the Royal Navy, the world's oceans, and with it much of the world's resources, were largely now denied to him. Of course, there had been booty aplenty from the Blitzkrieg victories, and especially so from France, but that had already been spent, eaten and generally gobbled up. The only alternative source of much-needed resources of food and fuel especially had been the Soviet Union. From the summer of 1940, Hitler and his general staff, the Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, the OKW, had, been, had begun planning an invasion of the USSR, but it required total focus and the use of the maximum resources they did have. Diversions were in no way welcome. So it would be a massive understatement to say Hitler was disappointed by Mussolini and the Italians. Suddenly, in early 1941, he was faced with the choice of going to his allies' rescue or risking losing his southern flank, and with it the all-important Puesti oil field in Romania, which was Nazi Germany's only source of real, rather than costly synthetic, fuel. Precious panzer divisions and the Luftwaffe were sent to Libya to stem the British advance, and also to Sicily, from where Malta could be hammered. More troops and air forces were dispatched first to Yugoslavia, and then into Greece. Finally, in May 1941, and just a month before Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union, German troops with no Italian help whatsoever invaded the Mediterranean island of Crete. The Balkans and Greece were secured, so too was Crete, but needless to say, so close to Barbarossa, these diversions were needed like a proverbial bolt in the head. And in any case, the siege of Malta simply sucked in greater amounts of air forces, while North Africa required ever more effort. At one brief moment, when Tobruk had been captured in the third week of June 1942 and the British had fled hundreds of miles back to the Alamein position, just 60 miles from Alexandria, and with Malta then successfully besieged and on the point of starvation, it had looked as though victory in the Mediterranean had been within Hitler's grasp. It had been, though, an illusion. The British had traded space for time and their lines of supply had been greatly shortened, while Hitler's champion, the newly promoted Feldmarschall Erwin Rommel, had horribly overextended his and at the expense of the invasion of Malta, an attack favoured by Rommel's immediate superior, Feldmarshal Albert Kesselring. In the argument of whether to throw the dice and go all out for the glittering prize of Egypt, the Suez Canal and the oil fields of the Middle East, or whether to subdue Malta once and for all, first, Hitler had been the arbitrator, the arch-gambler had rolled and got it wrong. Malta had been saved for the Allies in mid-August, 
and a couple of weeks later had then provided aircraft that had helped sink a vital fuel convoy heading to Rommel's panzer army. Rommel's last assault in Egypt, at Alam Halfa, had been crushed, and suddenly it was a turn of his force to stare down the barrel. At Alamein, the recently arrived team of Generals Alexander and Montgomery, ably assisted by a resurgent RAF and the, United, and the 1st United States Army Air Force units in the theatre, crushed Rommel's Axis army, and so began the long tre- retreat back across North Africa, and which had ended in Tunisia that May 1943. Such had been Hitler's obsession with his southern front, however. He had poured not just men, but huge amounts of material into Tunisia, so that what had begun with him sending a couple of divisions back in February 1941 had ended up swelling to two German-Italian armies. By the time the Axis forces surrendered, some 250,000 men were in captivity roughly the same amount as had been lost at Stalingrad. In the final battles, more than 300 tanks had been lost, while the three battle-hardened divisions of Rommel's old Africa Corps, the 21st, 15th Panzer Divisions and the 19th Light Division, had been wholesale destroyed. Every man killed, wounded or put in the bag, along with all their equipment and invaluable combat experience. For the Luftwaffe, the picture was every bit as grim. From November 1942 until the end, a staggering 2,422 German aircraft alone, not including those lost by the Italian Air Force, the Regia Aeronautica, had been lost. Those were crippling numbers. For the OKW, the men trying to plan and shape Germany's war whilst also acting as Hitler's mouthpiece, the loss of Tunisia had far-reaching and decidedly grave consequences. No longer was the war in the south restricted to the arms reach safety of the North African coastline, but now encompassed the entire sweep of the Mediterranean. Deputy Chief of the OKW Operations Staff was General Lieutenant Walter Wallermont, a 48-year-old career soldier and former artilleryman who had served on the operational planning staff since before the war. This had given him almost daily access to Hitler and the large, unenviable task of trying to put the Fuhrer's wishes into some kind of action. It also meant that right now, with North Africa lost, some serious plans needed to be made, and in very quick order. Wallermont's staff soon produced figures to suggest that Allies had freed up around 2 million tonnes of shipping for the movement of troops and supplies due to the reopening of the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal, which was certainly not good news. Worse, though, was the realisation that Allies now had vast armed forces in the Mediterranean and were almost certain to send them across the sea for an assault on a major Axis stronghold in the theatre. It was Wallermont's job to try and work out where that might be and to prepare for such an eventuality. And it was also the task of his team to consider what they might do about their Italian ally, an appreciation they set to work on immediately. Survey of the situation should Italy withdraw from the war was prepared on Hitler's direct instructions and was an incredible admission of just how low relations between the two allies had sunk. Hitler's view was that the Balkans were the most likely target for further Allied strategy in the southern theatre. His lack of geopolitical understanding repeatedly hindered German strategy. He was utterly incapable of looking at any situation except through the prism of his own worldview. The Balkans were the part of the southern flank he feared losing most, so that was where the Allies would strike. Whenever he tried to put himself into the Allies' shoes, he merely transposed his own thoughts onto their situation. The reason for his obsession with the Balkans was because it led directly to the Romanian oil fields, one of Nazi Germany's most prized assets, as well as to critical supplies of bauxite, copper and chrome that came from the area. 
with much of the Balkans, from Greece to Yugoslavia, now in revolt, also made it seem ripe for Allied plucking, as was the fact that much of its coastlines were poorly and thinly defended by Italian troops who'd not been given any updated equipment since 1941. That there might not be anything like enough beaches or ports or half-decent internal infrastructure or that it was way beyond Allied fighter cover, an absolutely non-negotiable prerequisite for any major amphibious landing, does not appear to have swayed him from this conviction that the Balkans were now the Allies' major goal. The Balkans, he announced on the 19th of May, were almost more dangerous than the problem of Italy, which if the worst comes to worst, we can always seal off somewhere. Wallemont, though, was aware, as were others, that the Allies would need a stepping stone and that Sicily, Sardinia or even Corsica were the most likely targets. Clearly, it was essential to keep the Allies as far away from the Southern Reich as possible, and this meant sending reinforcements into Italy and also the Balkans. These would have to come from the Eastern Front, but could also be drawn from France, since it now seemed unlikely the Allies would attempt a channel crossing any time soon. Hitler broadly accepted Wallermann's appreciation, although seems to have become convinced that the first stepping stone would be Sardinia, not Sicily. This was in large part due to Operation Mincemeat, a rather ghoulish intelligence wheeze by the British Secret Intelligence Service and their double X, double cross committee, who had had the idea to drop the corpse of a Welsh down and out who'd killed himself with rat poison and dress him up as an officer and dump him from a submarine just off the southern Spanish coast. No longer would the dead man be Glendower Michael, but rather acting Major William Martin of the Royal Marines. No small detail was overlooked about his person were letters between Martin and his fictitious girlfriend, receipts and various other seemingly innocuous details that lent verisimilitude to the whole elaborate scam. Most importantly, though, were documents relating to Allied plans to make landings in southern Greece at Cape Araxos and Kalamata. There was also a reference to sardines, which was supposed to be perceived as a possible coded clue to an operation against Sardinia. The body was prepared to look as though the man had died in a plane crash and was dropped close enough to the Spanish coast that it would be washed up on the beach, picked up by Spanish authorities and the information passed on to the Germans. Major Martin was put into the sea in the early hours of 30th of April and everything went exactly according to plan. So much so that by the 14th of May, British cryptanalysts had decoded German ciphers warning an Allied invasion was expected in the Balkans. Mincemeat was certainly ingenious, but one of the reasons it worked was because it reinforced a view upon which Hitler had already decided. What's more, it wasn't the only piece of intelligence chicanery. The Axis were also led to believe a 12th army had been established in the Middle East, ready to invade Greece, even though in reality it was every bit as fictitious as Major Martin, and simply a cover name for 8th Army. In Greece itself, Operation Animals was carried out by a British Special Operations Executive, SOE, mission led by Brigadier Eddie Myers, a quite quiet and methodical engineer turned sabotage maestro. In just over three weeks between May the 29th and June the 23rd, Myers and his team carried out some 44 acts of sabotage in Greece, cutting telephone wires, blocking roads, blowing railway lines and destroying the Asopos viaduct and blocking the Metsovo Pass, all of which were supposed to make the Axis believe that Allies would be landing in Greece and possibly Sardinia, but certainly not Sicily. All these elaborate deception plans, however, were almost too clever for their own good, because Sicily was just so obvious, despite Hitler's view to the contrary. It was the only target that afforded realistic fighter cover, and it was very obviously the target that promised the most bang for buck from the Allied perspective. Certainly, Feldmarschall Kessering remained convinced Sicily would be the Allies' target, and so did Mussolini for what it was worth. At any rate, 
Neither mincemeat nor any of the other deception plans for that matter were responsible for changing the entire course of World War II, as has often been claimed by filmmaker and publishing hyperbole. What seems clear is that Hitler had already decided the Balkans and possibly Sardinia was going to be the target, intelligence scams or no, while those who were convinced rightly it was going to be Sicily were not dissuaded by any washed-up corpse or blown-up viaduct. Far more corrosive for Axis fortunes in the Mediterranean was the growing toxicity of the alliance, for wherever the Allies struck it was absolutely now clear neither the Germans nor the Italians trusted each other one inch. Germany was now actively planning for life without its Italian ally, while most senior Italian commanders were equally wondering how they could now extricate themselves from the war with the minimum amount of German retribution, which for obvious reasons was feared might be terrible indeed. With the loss of North Africa, Hitler accepted the writing was on the wall for Italy, but perhaps because of his affection for Mussolini, he did not want to accept that Il Duce might now stab him in the back and take Italy out of the war. Instead, the Führer had become convinced that Mussolini was in poor health and now, at 60, too old to hold on to the reins of power with his former iron fist. After all, Il Duce was not the absolute leader that Hitler was. Italy was still a monarchy and because of that, there were checks on his power. Do you think, Hitler asked Grand Admiral Dönitz on the 14th of May, after the latter's seven-day visit to Rome, that the Duce is determined to go all the way with Germany, right to the end? Without Mussolini, Hitler knew that Germany's partnership with Italy was over. It had always been that relationship that had glued the two nations. Despite the catalogue of catastrophic errors Mussolini had made, Hitler had remained curiously loyal to his old fascist friend. Less than a week later, on the 20th of May 1943, at the Wolfschanz in East Prussia, Hitler's field headquarters, a conference was held to discuss the deteriorating situation with Italy. Attending was Feldmarshal Keitel, chief of the OKW, and Hitler's number one lackey, as well as Wallermund and also Rommel, who had recently been appointed commander of Army Group B, formed to defend northern Italy should the worst come to the worst. Also there was Sonderführer Konstantin Freiherr von Neurath, the Reich's protector of Bohemia and Moravia, but who had also just returned from a diplomatic mission to Rome. While there, von Neurath had had a number of conversations with General Mario Ruata, who had been commander of the Italian Second Army in Yugoslavia before taking over on Sicily. He had recently returned to Rome, as, was he, as he was due to take over from Generale Vittorio Ambrosio as Chief of Staff of the Italian Armed Forces. It was Sicily that had been of particular interest to von Neurath, and Ruata had told him he had little faith in the Italians' ability to hold the island, should it ever be attacked. Already the Allied air forces were shooting up railways and other lines of communications. There was, he reported, just one ferry operating across the streets of Messina. The others were being saved for more important purposes. What were these? Hitler asked. Well, my Führer, von Neurath replied, at one moment the Italians say, when the war is over, that's a very frequent expression, at another moment they say, you never know what's going to happen. German troops von Neurath spoke to told him the ferries over the straits were there and in working order, but that the Italians were holding them back. German troops already in Sicily were deeply unpopular. Once the English arrive, that's the end of the war, von Neurath continued. That's the general opinion in southern Italy, that once the English come, the thing will be over quicker than if the Germans are still there making life unpleasant. As the discussion continued, Hitler and the rest of those attending increasingly began to work themselves into a lather about Italian treachery. The Allies were flattening Palermo, but not Cagliari and Sardinia, another sign they were intending to land on the latter and use its port facilities. General Ruata was known to have a number of pro-English staff officers under him. Some were even married to English wives. 
Personally, and so far as I know him, added von Neurath about Roatta, I wouldn't trust him further than I could kick him. He'd always been rather a fox. Hitler agreed. Roatta was a spy, a completely spineless spy. That Roatta had become known as the Black Beast of Yugoslavia for the brutality with which he dealt with communists and partisans, a brutal and ruthless approach earlier much admired by the Germans, had been forgotten. That was then. But now the filthy weasel was clearly up to something and planning to stab them in the back. The Italian leadership was also feckless, spoiled and corrupt. They were always bleating to the Germans they never had enough supplies and yet continued to party hard in Rome like overindulged playboys. I am quite clear in my mind, Hitler then announced. A certain section in that country has consistently sabotaged this war from the very beginning. From the beginning! Back in 1939, if Italy had declared war on Poland at the same time as Germany, then France and Britain would never have done so. Every memorandum I sent to the Duce, he continued, was immediately transmitted to England. Treachery was clearly lurking at every turn. They now wondered whether they shouldn't get the Hermann Goering division out of southern Sicily. Rommel suggested perhaps they should demand the Italians send more troops to Sicily instead. The last thing anyone wanted was for their own troops to be isolated, surrounded and betrayed. Rommel had so little faith in the Italians, he even questioned whether they should be sending any German troops into Italy at all. The great question for me is, what's the Duce's state of health, Hitler said, returning to a now familiar theme. That's the decisive factor with a man who has to take such important decisions. What does he reckon the odds are if, for instance, the fascist revolution goes under? The truth was, Mussolini would not have been able to give Hitler an answer to his question, even if he'd been standing before him. Mussolini had got himself into power back in 1922 as the world's first fascist dictator through energy, drive and force of character. To a war-weary, poverty-stricken nation where democracy seemed to do little for the ordinary Italian, Mussolini had offered something brash and bold and exciting. He'd restored some much-needed pride and, yes, the trains had improved, as had employment, and so had Italy's wider reach. Libya, then Abyssinia, had become part of a burgeoning empire. Many Italians, and especially the young, had loved the marches, the militarism, the snappy uniforms. Vast crowds had cheered when he'd stood on the balcony of the Palazzo Venezia in Rome on the 10th of June 1940 and announced that Italy had declared war on Britain and France. Vinceremo, he had promised, his jaw set and chin jutting upwards with resolute bombast. We will win. Not quite three years later, his dreams of a new Rome with he as its Caesar had long ago been kicked into touch. Even the might of Nazi Germany and Hitler's panzers and Messerschmitts had not been able to stave off disaster. And Hitler had been right about one thing. He was feeling ill. The previous July he'd gone to Libya expecting to lead the triumph into Cairo. He'd returned with the Axis army stuck at Alamein and with a stomach problem he couldn't shift. Whether it was psychosomatic or not, it was also eating away at his resolve. At the Council of Ministers meeting in Rome the previous November, his appearance had shocked his ministers. He'd looked like a dying man about to collapse at any moment. From October 1942, Mussolini wrote, which was when Montgomery had launched the Battle of Alamein, I had a constant and growing presentiment of the crisis which was to overwhelm me. My illness greatly affected this. Or perhaps it was the other way around. At any rate, he was certainly aware the vultures were starting to circle, most within the Italian establishment. Those very same Roman elites that had prompted so much contempt from Hitler and von Neurath had been wondering how Italy might extricate itself from the war ever since the disastrous defeat at Alamein. The loss of North Africa had merely brought this to greater focus. Perhaps, some wondered, Mussolini might ask for Hitler's consent to conclude peace with the Allies. 
This was, of course, a vain hope, but conversations were had and meetings held, and although nothing much seemed to come of them, and not least because it was obvious that even if Italy did somehow make peace with the Allies, the country would most likely be invaded by Germany. Retribution would be inevitably terrible. Italy found itself between a rock and a hard place. Mussolini knew it too. He wrote long, a long letter to Hitler pleading with him to sue for terms of Stalin and turn his attention closer to home in the South. The Führer simply ignored them. Obsessed though he was about his southern flank, Hitler's ideology and that of National Socialism was wedded to the racial struggle against Bolshevism. Nonetheless, in Rome the plots continued to thicken, although none of them seemed to get much beyond an exchange of conversations. Conspiracy was in the air, as von Neurath discerned so palpably. In February, Mussolini had a clear-out, sacking those he thought most likely to be plotting, or were the most outspokenly pessimistic. One of those to go was his son-in-law, Count Galeazzo Ciano, one of the playboys Hitler had scorned, but who was clever, had far greater geopolitical awareness than his master, and who had seen the writing on the wall a long time earlier. Ciano, a serial philanderer, was made ambassador to the Vatican. The way which Providence chooses, he wrote in one of his last diary entries, are indeed sometimes mysterious. The change of team at the top made little difference. Mussolini had become isolated. He was sick and alone. He held no reciprocal affection for Hitler, who seemed to rant at him whenever they met. Hitler felt betrayed by Italy. Mussolini felt betrayed by Hitler, also dating back to 1939 for embroiling Italy in a war for which it had clearly not been ready. Neither man was prepared to consider his own culpability for the disasters that now faced their respective countries. Racked with stomach pains, surrounded by men he could no longer trust, Il Duce began to go a little mad on occasion. In early June, Carlo Pareschi, the Minister for Agriculture, admitted during a meeting that the harvest so far had not brought the yields hoped for. Mussolini suddenly cut in. A few days ago, he said, I was in the countryside and I saw the, what the birds get up to. They land on the stem and their weight bends the ear of wheat so that they remain hidden. Then they eat the grain. His solution was to kill the birds. Kill them all, he exclaimed. In many ways, the immediate fate of Mussolini was in the hands of King Vittorio Emanuele. Tiny of stature and pretty tiny of mind too, the king had sanctioned fascism and had sanctioned a catastrophic war. He seemed less concerned about the fate of his people, however, and more about the fate of the monarchy and whether it would survive any peace with the Allies. He also worried whether it would survive an invasion by Germany. Whatever, the future looked far from rosy, and if the king was considering making a move to remove Mussolini, he did nothing about it. For the time being, Mussolini would remain il duce. Meanwhile, in Italy, civil strife grew worse. The country was being bombed not perhaps in the same flattening way that was starting to be meted out in Germany, but by the end of 1942 some 25,000 homes had been destroyed in Turin, while more than half a million had evacuated out of Milan. For food shortages were beginning to bite, especially in the city, and along with a host of other shortages too. There was little petrol, and most people were living off less than a 1,000 calories a day, which was not enough. Corruption and black marketeering were rampant, and made life even more miserable for the masses. Hundreds of thousands of young men were now locked up in Allied or Russian prison camps. And nowhere was the misery of war felt more keenly than in the south, and especially so in Sicily, the island off the toe of mainland Italy, which was part of Italy, but also not part of it too. On Sicily, for centuries home to a mass of impoverished, beaten-down peasants, life was especially tough. <laughs> ¶¶